welcome to Gin and Topic. Woo! We are here for another series. Yep, another one. Just keeps happening. Just it keeps does. going. It does. And so we got loads of gins. Oh yeah, tons of gin. Tons of gin. Tons of experts. Yeah. Tons of topics. Well, and that's the thing, you see. Give us a gin. Talk to anyone. We will. Mm. We will talk to anyone about anything. So yeah, we're going to talk to a ton of people about loads of stuff over gin. And I'm going to make rude comments while we do it to stay on brand. <laughs> and you never know, we might actually learn some stuff. We might even remember stuff. <laughs> oh, that's not going to happen anytime soon. So who are we speaking to this Christmas Eve? So this Christmas Eve, we are talking to James Blackshaw. Okay. And James is a scientific data engineer at... Here we go, here we go. Deep breath, deep breath. EMBL, which is European Molecular Biology Laboratory. Of course. It's their European Bioinformatics Institute. Right, well, I didn't take in any of that, so that's good. So it's the EMBL EBI in Cambridge. Okay, it's in Cambridge. That's all I need to know, and it's do with engineers. Got it. Um, but chemical God, engineering, how big molecular have you got the writing on biology. Your iPad now, you old lady. I know, I've even got my glasses on. Oh, and Jesus. All I want for Christmas is some new eyes. Um, so he currently works on chemical information databases, mm-hmm. but his PhD was on the metabolism of malaria parasites and ways to find potential new drugs. Okay. Can you link malaria and a gin tonic? It's a gin that raises money for malaria supply things. No. Okay, then no, I can't. Gin and tonic, if I remember rightly, the reason why a gin and tonic was invented was to make tonic more appetising to drink. Oh, hold the fuck up. Actually, I could have, because guess what? Audience, it's time. Here comes Anya's obsessions. <laughs> so I'm listening to the sixth Bridgerton book, When He Was Wicked. Uh-huh. The main love interest, spoilers for those who haven't got that far yet or don't intend to, has malaria. Right. He takes quinine um, yes. to help with the malaria, which yes. is in tonic. Yes. And they say that people start mixing it with gin to make it more palatable. Boom. Boom. Yes. Boom. Boom. You got it. Regency smut will get you far in life, people. <laughs> That's absolutely right. So this is our tenuous link. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. So his... Um, PhD was in malaria. He now does um, other stuff, mm-hmm. but he's also a listener of our podcast. Aww. And he was in work mm-hmm. chatting to his colleague about our podcast, Aww. as you do. That's so cute. And as he says, a little gin filled light bulb went on in his head. Love that. Um, So he emailed and asked if we'd like to do an episode on how many of the ingredients of gin and tonic are of surprising scientific interest. Oh. And I said, oh, that sounds perfect for Christmas. Oh, there you go. And here we are. It's a little Christmas gift for everybody. You can sip your gin knowing how important it is. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to do the science of gin and tonic. And our question is, how many of the ingredients of gin and tonic are of surprising scientific interest? So we've talked about quinine. I'm not sure we know any others. But most importantly, what are we drinking this Christmas? Okay, so um, this decision Mm -hmm. has not been made by either myself 
or James. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> the choice got made by his partner. Pez. Because she said, well, if you're drinking gin, you have to drink Adnam's Copper House Gin because right. it is the best gin in the world. I think I've world's had this. Best world's best World's gin. best gin. 2013. Yeah. I think I have had this before. I think I have had it in my local pub back in Norfolk. Well, and of course it's a Suffolk gin, exactly. so it's not far. Mm -hmm. And I think I enjoyed it, but I also think I had it in the midst of a rather long evening in a pub. <laughs> yeah. Well, this could be amidst a rather long Christmas Eve in your room. So watching anyway, Muppets Christmas Carol and Love Actually back to back. We've also got some little treats that have been given to us oh, by James yeah. for this episode Time as well. To make some gin, then. So make the gin. We are pairing it with orange and just standard. Because fever even though tree. it's Christmas, I'm not putting fucking cinnamon in my drink. Well, but also um, that's what Fever Tree recommend with an Adnams. Oh, there we go. And the interesting thing about the Adnams, apparently, is some of the botanics are a bit surprising. And one of the botanics is... Wish you were I don't think it, you I don't think it has anything. Oh, oh hibiscus. Oh, hibiscus. Which is quite a pretty, like not really hibiscus. a Christmas flower, um, mm. but nice and pretty. So notes of juniper, sweet orange and hibiscus. Sweet orange is Christmas. Chin, chin. Merry Christmas. Merry Ginmas. Oh, bad. I know. But funny. That is a gin. Oh. That's a gin. Oh, I That's like a nice citrusy that. gin. Can't go wrong. Oh, that's lovely. Now, um, James, on the other hand, might not be enjoying it so much because to him, he wanted his usual mulberry and slow gin. Oh, no. Well, his partner said he wasn't allowed to drink that on the podcast because it's a children's drink. <laughs> I like his partner. Can we can we invite them on? <laughs> so that's what we're drinking. And as well as the gin, I had to go over to James's place to pick up a couple of bits for this episode. One of which is a black light. Ooh. Oh, um, don't turn that around here. You might not want to know. Don't know what we're doing with that. <laughs> and the other one is a is a box and I don't know what's in it. It looks quite. It's got LED Ooh. light strips in, or UV does it? Or has LED it light strips? Unless, well, it might be UV LED light strips. Oh no, it is. Oh, that's exciting. So James will talk us through what we're going to do with that um, as we explore all of the surprising scientific bits about gin and tonic. Whilst you eat crisp, tis the season to eat snacks. Tra la 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 la. Thank you, thank you very much. It's so, isn't it? It is. It is. We should have lots of snacks out here, but <gasps> not a turkey. That would be a step too far. Mm, I could do a turkey. Yeah. Although I don't actually Sorry. really like turkey. No, no, we don't do turkey. I know. We do a cock <laughs> <laughs> every time. Every time. <laughs> Welcome to Gin and Topic. We have no idea about any scientific interests in gin and tonic, apart from I could imagine that science would be always more enjoyable with the gin and tonic, as I think any subject is more enjoyable with the gin and tonic. This is true. Hmm? Yeah. So take us through these most well, well, exciting... Well, well, oh, no, no. Well, oh, up. no. Sorry. Drink gin first, Sarah. Cheers. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Cheers. And I was telling Anya that you didn't choose the gin. 
So tell, the, tell us the story, the conversation that went with this gin. <laughs> so uh, a couple of Christmases ago, I got some uh, mulberry and slow gin liqueur off my brother. And when I was talking about coming on podcast, I mentioned to my partner, oh, I should, uh, I should bring some of the mulberry and, uh, and slow stuff. That would be great. No, no, apparently that's children's boots. And uh, adhering to Finnish stereotype, she, she has to make sure that I'm drinking proper, clear, hard person booze. Uh, so, yes, Adnam's copper house it is. I'm inclined to agree with her, I must say. And i got to say, this is a bloody good gin. Mine good has gin. already gone down quite a bit. What do you think of it in comparison to your your sweet pop? <laughs> uh, I actually like this one because it's uh, quite clean and refreshing. Mm. It's got that citrusiness to it. It goes well with the cucumelons that I've got in here Ooh, from my garden. Nice. We're enjoying it with orange and it is really nice with orange. So where are we going to start then, James? We're going to start 5,000 years ago in Iraq. As you do. Well, we like yeah, doing a little time <laughs> yeah. time travel at the episode. So let's go back with 5,000 years. So by trade, I'm a chemoinformatician. I deal with uh, records on chemicals and biological processes and the like. And this has a long and storied history because the earliest known name written down of a person and the earliest known mathematics mistake were both from a clay tablet found in the city, the Mesopotamian city of Uruk, in what is now uh, modern-day southern Iraq. They're over 5,000 years old, and they include stock control records from a barley warehouse. And the reason that I'm mentioning this is to show you just how far back people have been using biochemistry with absolutely no idea how it works, (laughs) but we're just very, very happy about it. Brilliant. Brilliant. I love it. So 5,000 years ago and yeah, mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. (laughs) And that is still going on today with uh, biochemistry data and uh, scientific records that uh, people like me end up uh, having to clean up for insertion into database (laughs) and the like, which is why I am ridiculously overqualified to talk about drinking gin. (laughs) (laughs) So it keeps you busy. Yeah. Yeah. It does. So from 5,000 years, where are we going next? Well, to to how barley works, or rather how you get from barley to something that you can ferment and then distill. I am not a gin expert and I had to go and look this one up. Uh, I can confirm that on Adam's website they said that uh, this gin is made from local East Anglian barley. So I've decided not to talk about, for example, whey or rye or any of the other things you can make gin out of. Because, yes, there's gins made of milk byproducts. That's normal. Oh. oh. That would mess with me. Oh, gosh. Oh, no, that's worse than peas. Oh, no. Let's stick to barley gin. Barley's good. Yeah, barley gin. Like barley. Yeah. Okay, so you can't ferment barley as it is, as a grain, because it's carbohydrates. So all the sugars kind of bound up in long chains of glucose, sort of stuck end-to-end, like winding something into a rope. So in order to let the yeast work on it, you need to chop those long chains down into something smaller. And the way they do right. that with uh, with barley, the same thing's done for gin and for beer, is to malt it. So they let the grains sprout, they let the little green shoots make their way up towards the light, and then they stick them in an oven and kill them. 
Oh, oh, when you put it like that, it sounds cruel. You need to, maybe we should free a barley for Christmas like the Americans we're do not, with turkeys for no, Thanksgiving. No, 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 we're not gonna put them in the gin. barley. No, we'll no. put it in the gin. Good. Definitely. We're happy with it dying. That's fine. Well, there's a wonderful old English folk song called uh, John Barleycorn about how he's uh, ground and baked and tortured and then rises again in the spring. It's it's very Wicker Man. Oh, my God. We need to listen to that. <laughs> Definitely. We'll be searching that up. Yeah, the reason that you, you need to malt the barley and let it sprout is because all this starch is a food store for the growing seedling. So if you let it grow for a bit, the seedling does the work for you. It breaks down that um, long rope of carbohydrates uh. into maltose, which is what, you know, the, the chemical got the name from the process. We yeah. malt it, so we're calling it maltose. <laughs> and Handy. So the, the enzyme that does that is called uh, an amylase. And there's one sort that uh, lives in barley seeds, and there's another sort that lives in your spit. So if you chew bread you'll notice that after a while it starts to taste slightly sweet. Yeah. 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 Mm. And that's because the salivary amylase uh, produced in your mouth is actually breaking down the carbohydrates into sugars. And that's the first step of a digestive process. That's, that's, why you, that's largely why it makes spit. Sugars. The, so the thing about that is that uh, people who brew in uh, countries outside of Europe, so in South America and in some parts of Japan, they've used this traditionally as a way of going from grains to something that you can ferment. They'll chew it and then they'll spit it out into a bucket and then they'll chew some more. And there's a South American corn beer called Chicha that uh, some traditional methods are involving doing that. And, you know, yes, you, you I've ferment heard it. that. Like birds. Yeah. Chewing it up and... <laughs> and giving it to the young. Yeah. But not that because you're fermenting it into an alcoholic yeah, drink. Well, sometimes <laughs> they're quieter once you rub a bit of whiskey on their gums. <laughs> Help them go to sleep. <laughs> the Irish side of the family taught me that. <laughs> oh, but that is quite gross. That I is. really don't like that. And I'm, I'm we're not encouraging anybody no. to start... Chewing up and fermenting please your food. Please don't. And if you do, please do not tag us about it on Twitter. No. <laughs> no, we don't. Don't. We don't want to know. know. We don't <laughs> So after much uh, torturing of corn or chewing things up, depending on what methods you're using, you've got to convert these sugars to alcohol, and uh, that involves yeast. So yeast is a fungus. Uh, you normally find it growing on the outside of things like apples. It's that kind of beigey blobby thing you get in rotting apples mm. so it's not the sort of nice. blue and white fuzzy penicillin mold that's a different bit of biochemistry that i'm not talking about today but it's super interesting <laughs> next time <laughs> another time <laughs> so at the moment i'm getting a i'm getting a little worried that okay. i'm that i might end up being put off gin because well, if I that happens, I really hate to tell you this, Sarah, but we've got a whole rest of the series to yeah, go. Yeah, it's all right. I'll work through it. I'll work Good. through it. We can send you to I therapy. might have a few nightmares. Yeah, I might yeah. need some. Yeah. Yeah. We okay. could. Oh, for Christmas, we could get each other therapy vouchers. Oh, done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you're probably not going to want to hear that alcohol is basically yeast poop, right? <laughs> You know, I've never, ever considered not drinking before. It's just not part of my DNA. But now, 
I'm questioning things. But I'm also questioning yeast doesn't have a body to poop from, so it can't be poopy yeast. poop. Poop. Well, poop is just a, a a waste product of things we don't need. So yeast can be a waste product of things, right? Does that sound clever? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. I am intelligent. <laughs> okay, intelligent for talking about yeast poop. Let's carry on with it. Tell me why. Okay, so um, the way that uh, ourselves and yeast get energy from food is by basically chopping the sugars up and burning them. So glucose is a sort of ring-shaped molecule with uh, six carbons on it. And if you break down those carbons into smaller blocks and then break down those smaller blocks into carbon dioxide, you can get energy from it. It's Mm -hmm. similar in principle to, you know, setting something on fire and getting heat out, except Mm -hmm. you're converting chemical energy in the bonds to chemical energy that you can more usefully store and use for cellular processes like, you know, being alive, which is generally considered helpful. It's quite quite a good thing. (laughs) But why does yeast produce alcohol? Because, you know, alcohol's toxic it's not particularly useful to cells Uh, and the answer is because there's two ways that you can uh, break down and ferment food to get uh, to get energy there there is aerobic um respiration which is one where they all wear the little leg warmers (laughs) it's not not used to jumping jacks i had to i had to (laughs) and there is anaerobic respiration and aerobic respiration is something like many many times more efficient because you are processing the glucose more you're getting more energy out you're putting it through more reactions you're squeezing every last drop of efficiency out of process but there's another means of respiration that you can do when you're short on oxygen so it's called anaerobic respiration if you can maybe think back to PE lessons or what you might know from a personal trainer about lactic acid in the muscles I'll get you the therapy don't you worry I heard PE and I knew you were going to say it but then James followed it up with PT and my immediate brain went oh gym that's fine I like the gym so ha suck it I'm good (laughs) oh that's true okay you're over it that's fine I'm good so generally what you do to turn glucose into energy is you chop that six carbon molecule down into two carbon molecules and you feed it into this cycle of reactions that keeps extracting energy out of it. If you don't have enough oxygen to run it, you can instead turn that uh, two carbon unit into something else. And in our muscles, that's lactic acid. Which, oh yes, mm, that's yeah. shit, that's the stuff that makes your legs hurt, mm-hmm. or is good as a gentle exfoliant on your face. Skincare, boom. <laughs> oh yeah, that just messes my head. The hurting leg is massaging your face. I need more gin. <laughs> Look, I had two facts and I had to share them both. Yeah. It was important. Thank you. So uh, when we run and we're we're in oxygen debt. We can't run the uh, the Krebs cycle, it's called, this cycle of reactions that goes round and round and generates energy from food. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. instead, we take that two-carbon unit that we produced and we turn it into lactic acid. Yeast doesn't do that. Yeast takes that two-carbon unit and converts it into alcohol, which is two carbons oh. with an oxygen and a hydrogen on the end. Now... It's probably for the best, but we don't do it because otherwise the Olympics would have been quite different this last year <laughs> as you would have seen someone blitzing the 100 metres and then falling over blind drunk. Now that I would watch. Oh, yeah. You're kidding me. 
Okay. I have seen girls do that on nights out though, and they do it in heels, which is more impressive. Which is really impressive. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that would be quite cool, especially if you've forgotten to buy anything. It's like, could really do with a gin. I know. Just go running. (laughs) (laughs) It would maybe be the first time in my life I would want to go for a run. (laughs) But clever yeast. Clever yeast. Yeah. Yeah. I'm impressed by that. But lactic acid isn't poo. I'm just making that horrible comparison because the um, the yeast excretes the alcohol into its environment, which is why it ends up in solution. And, it, you know, you don't have to, say, cook your beer to get the alcohol out of the yeast cells. That would be strange. Uh, that does sound quite grim. <laughs> yeah. Was it the use of the word excrete? It was, excreting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't like that word. So we've got yeast excreting alcohol for us. Yeah, and so yeast is actually quite similar to humans. You know, we both get extract energy from food the same way, and both our cells have a nucleus, which is a little bit in the middle where all the DNA is kind of bunched up, and Mm -hmm. when the cell needs to use it to form a set of instructions for proteins or whatever, it will put a little bit out and copy it. Whereas in bacteria, the DNA is just kind of all over the place, as it were. Mm. It's not in a specific location with a membrane around it. Mm -hmm. And because yeast and humans aren't that different, in fact, yeast is actually closer to an animal than it is to a plant, Mm. then we can use yeast in science. We can use genetic modification to insert human proteins into yeast. And we've been doing that for a very, very long time indeed. So you can use yeast to do experiments on to see how single cells work, how they divide. A lot of the early work on ageing was done on yeasts because yeast cells sort of age and develop. They're called budding scars when they split off a new bit of yeast and then there's kind of proteins and junk stuck where the new one budded off from. Uh So... Yeast has been very, very much used in molecular biology because scientists are very good at manipulating it and experimenting on it and inserting bits into it. And it's been very well used in biotechnology because, again, if you can put a bit of human protein in, this becomes Mm. very useful when humans are lacking a protein. So, for example, with diabetics. Yeah. I only think of yeast as I've got it in the cupboard. Bread. To make pizza. Well, don't make bread, but pizza dough. I make bread. I like making bread. Yeah, I, I can't. When I'm get stressed, on there is nothing better than walloping the fuck out of some bread dough. That's true. Yeah. But that's the only thing I think yeast is good for is just baking. I never knew that one, that yeast is used so much, and two, that it's more like an animal than a plant. There you go. You've learned something. I make have a note already. so that you don't forget before the <laughs> end of the like episode. Bread. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so tell us more about yeast then. Okay, so one of the reasons that yeast has been used for so long uh, in science is because it's really easy to grow. Uh, It doesn't have any particularly (laughs) difficult conditions. People have just been leaving uh, stewed up uh, malted barley or um, ripe grapes for a very long time without problems. You don't need a nice clean lab to do it. Um, And if you want to grow a lot of it in solution, well, when biochemists were developing these sort of processes, you could just go to a brewery and ask how it worked. Um, 
for a while, there was an attempt to name yeast uh, Saccharomyces carlsbergensis. Uh, oh, a... fuck no. I yeah. can't pronounce that. Are you kidding me? You're not reading Paul Hollywood's recipe and looking at that and being like, oh, yeah, let me just nip to the shop. <laughs> no. Well, that's the Latin name. Everything in biology uh, that's a species has a Latin name. You can blame a guy called Linnaeus for that one. Sorry, tell us the name of that again. Uh, Saccharomyces carlsbergensis was one name that the Carlsberg Brewing Company tried to make stick. Oh, of course, of course it was Carlsberg. I mean, honestly. <laughs> it's now called Saccharomyces cerevisiae. OK, so we're not going to call it its Latin name because that's just stupid. No. Mm-hmm. What else is cool? I can tell you that enzyme comes from the uh, name, the Greek, I think it is, for in yeast. Oh. <laughs> enzyme meaning things that were found in yeast. <laughs> I love it. Of course. Yeah. So we left this stuff. Oh, look, we found some stuff. Oh, and we'll call it the stuff we found in the stuff. <laughs> nice. Nothing if not practical. <laughs> uh, the study of brewing is actually called zymology for the same reason. Zymology. That, okay, to be fair, that's pretty cool. If somebody said to you, well, I've got a degree in zymology, you'd be like, ooh, tell but me But also, more. if you turn around and say, what do you do? And they say, I'm a brewer or I'm a zymologist. I'm more attracted to the last one, is your I'm answer. I'm a zymologist. Yeah. The first one, nice. I'm like, oh, beer, okay. Yeah. They say that, I'm like, ooh. What, ooh. What's a zymologist? That's got to have qualifications. <laughs> that doesn't sound like something everyone gets into. <laughs> Tell me more. Ooh, you've got an ology. Yeah, ologies are sexy. <laughs> so, yes, yeast in biotechnology. So mm. because it's really easy to grow and uh, quite amenable to being genetically modified and mucked about with and mutated, uh, people <laughs> have studied it for a long time, have used it. I'm feeling really sorry for this yeast. I'm thinking... Don't be. The yeast, yeast loves being rights. messed around with. The yeast loves <laughs> oh, it. that's true. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I won't feel sorry for it then. If, if I see protesters bursting into pubs screaming, free the yeast, I will free know where this started. Free the yeast! Sat. Oh, dear. Let's hope that doesn't happen. (laughs) No. Yeast is very happy. But, uh, yeah, you can insert human proteins into it and the insulin that people get for diabetes these days is made from yeast, uh, as opposed to grinding up pigs. What? So the problem is your pancreas isn't working. The pancreas is the bit of your body that makes insulin, which is a protein that tells your uh, body how to adjust the amount of glucose in your blood. Without that working, uh, you're going to have problems and you'll have too much or too little glucose and that will kill you. And this is bad. So how do we get that? Well, I suppose if we got a lot of pancreases out of something else, then we might be able to grind them up and Uh... extract them. And uh, hello, Slaughterhouse. Could we have some sweetbreads, please? Oh, my God. Sweetbreads are a word for pancreas in uh, awful terminology. Wow. Yeah. Gotta file that I under things thought... I didn't know and things I'm not sure I wanted to know. So they would get go buy sweetbreads 
and crush them up. Just literally so when are we tons talking? of pig pancreases. Uh, we're talking up to, I think, about the 70s. When oh shit! That's like because I was thinking horrible histories. You know, no, one of the recent. medieval doctors. But you're talking, yeah, up to the seventies. Yeah, yeast is a lot easier to grow than pinks, and it means we can have nice things like uh, virgin insulin. It was also much easier to harvest and purify because you know you can get a big vat and purify things from a big vat with yeast in. And this is something which, broadly speaking, people have been doing for a very long time. And then you stick your biochemical process on the end to uh, strip out the insulin and get it to a point that it's pure yeah, enough for people. Much, can much inject better. It. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm happier. I'm happier with insulin. You know, you're from not yeast. diabetic, right? And you make your own insulin. Yeah. I don't need pigs. There we go. Just wanted to remind you before you got too caught up in everything. <laughs> it's fine. This kind of thing sticks in my mind as uh, I may be slightly insulin hypersensitive since I once had a blood test and fainted. So, you know. Oh. <laughs> my blood sugar was too low. I'm too Ooh. good at insulin, possibly. So you yeah, don't I, need pigs or yeast then? I get quite low blood sugar. We, could, well. grind, we could grind James up. Let's not grind James <laughs> up. Don't, don't grind me up. <laughs> Why would you even suggest that? Sarah Cruz, Sorry. naughty Sorry. corner, minus 10 points Christmas for you. Christmas cheer, sharing. Honestly, sharing caring. no, we're not, no. <laughs> Sorry, James. Thank you. Sorry. Okay, so pigs and murder aside, we've now got alcohol. <laughs> but alcohol doesn't taste of much, you know, you don't get the uh, Christmas tree flavour. Very Christmassy, let's get festive. Yeah. Uh, without some more additions. And you don't get the taste of gin and tonic without tonic. So, uh, why tonic water? You mentioned at the start of the episode that um, you thought it was to make quinine more palatable. Yes. And what I found really interesting when looking into the history as well as the, you know, the structure... Don't tell me that Bridgerton Book 6 lied to me. It's not quite true, but the truth is even more interesting. It's oh, okay. That's right, so, how do we get uh, quinine? It's extracted from the bark of a South American tree called the cinchona tree. I've got a bottle of uh, fever tree tonic here, and uh, that's where they got the name from. There uh, you have two, yes! yes! You, you've been cribbing off the back of a bottle, haven't you? Absolutely not, but also I have <laughs> just noticed that it says natural flavours, including natural quinine. Yeah. I've never actually considered... Why fever tree is called fever tree? It's just called fever it's tree. Fever tree. And now my brain has gone. Ah, oh, yeah. You mm. know, a tree, an actual tree, and malaria and fever and quinine and oh, the pennies dropped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's what it was used for by um, indigenous uh, South Americans. They used it as an antipyretic. They used it to treat fevers. So yeah. uh, when Europeans showed up and started sort of dropping like flies from malaria, mm. which was yes. getting in the way of all that important pillaging, burning, Serves looting. Serves you right Shh. for going there, you bastards! <laughs> yep. Anyway. Yep. <laughs> okay, so how are we going to not drop like flies? We need something, anything, just, just get on this. And it was used as a kind of traditional medicine long before it was actually proven to work. But it was first extracted in 1820 by a pair of French chemists whose names I'm going to mangle because I haven't uh, <laughs> spoken French in years. Uh, Cavantou and Pelletier. Oh, um, that didn't yeah. sound too mangly. 
No, I was quite no. impressed with that. Yeah. yeah. So it was used as a as treatment for malaria. So you give it to someone with malaria. I'm not exactly sure when it started to be used prophylactically. So uh, before you have the illness in order to stop it taking hold. I can tell you that during the Regency era, it was only mm. used once they already had malaria because of my Bridgerton reading. So I can tell you that it was at least after then. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm learning. <laughs> So the question is, how did we get uh, tonic water? So the legend was it was Victorian colonists mixing their quinine with gin to make it palatable. Which was in the book! That was in the book! They said it tasted really gross and they were talking about how disgusting it was and Mm. the women were saying, oh, well, some people have been saying they mix it with gin. And they were like, you're a Regency lady. Have you ever even tasted gin? And they're like, oh, I have actually. And it's all, but there you go. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's actually right. There was a history of adding quinine to alcohol, but the tonic waters themselves weren't sold as a medicine against malaria. They were sold as a medicine against fever, which was yeah. what yeah, the Cinchona Bart was originally used for. Which was a byproduct of malaria. Yeah. Mm. It was just you have malaria, you have a fever, so you have the quinine. So yeah, yeah you know, like feed a cold, starve a fever, feed a cold, alcohol your fever. <laughs> I'm going to use that next time. I'll be like, Sarah, I've got a fever. I really need a gin. On your end is 8am on a Monday. No, no, no. I really need a gin. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) No, the first tonic water was sold as a sort of general fever remedy and digestive. You know, when you've had too much food at your big Regency banquet, maybe I'll get gout. I'll um, I'll be reaching for for a different bottle. Ah, So after the Christmas meal tomorrow... Gin and tonic. Gin and tonic. (laughs) As a... a Digestive. As a digestive. A digestive. It had a fantastic name, though. Pitt's aerated tonic water. And I believe that was in all capitals, which I'm trying to pronounce. Excellent. (laughs) Brilliant. Pitt aerated tonic water. So it was very effective for quite a long time, but unfortunately malaria started evolving resistance to it. Mm -hmm. And Mm. it's still in use in some places, I think, for... Uh, malaria treatment certainly it was when I wrote my PhDs and I shoved that into the introduction for what is malaria and what are anti-malarial drugs and how do we learn to kill this better (laughs) but uh, in the 20th century it got largely replaced by chloroquine and methloquine which like quinine with extra bits (laughs) (laughs) quinine on steroids Uh, that's what I was going to (laughs) say But yeah, they're both roughly the same shape of quin- as quinine. They both got kind of two ring-shaped bits of a molecule and then a side bit. And a common thing that chemists do when they want to make uh, a drug different, I either want to make it more toxic to the microorganism they're trying to kill off or less toxic to the patient they're trying desperately not to kill off or mm-hmm. get it into cells better, is they stick side chains on to change properties. So some might make it easier to get into a cell by making it more sort of greasy. So it slips through the cell membrane, which is basically made of grease. The external bit of all your cells is sort of oily. It's this mix of oil and protein that holds itself together. Okay. And, yeah. Mm. Grim. <laughs> Grim. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I've got oily cells. <laughs> Skin type, combination, cell type, oily. <laughs> So uh, when I was doing my PhD, I was working on a metabolic model of the malaria parasite. So sort of getting all the chemical reactions in the cell 
linking them up and putting it in a computer and seeing how uh, chemicals would flow into and out of a cell. The idea being we were trying to look at the reactions that either didn't exist in humans but did exist in malaria or mm. were really important to keeping malaria working but mm. uh, human cells could work around it because mm. if we uh, zonked out that reaction, the malaria would die and the human would just, you know, get some side effects. Yeah. So that, that's a good drug rather than a bad yeah. drug. Yeah. <laughs> and I learned a lot about antimalarials at that point. So if you uh, want to turn out the light behind you and uh, turn on your UV lights. Oh, Sarah oh, yeah. hit the lights. So I have turned off the big lights. I need to turn okay. the plug on. Plug. Oh, pretty. Okay. And then and and actually, <gasps> we need we. Oh, it's fuck. blue. No, it's like turquoise. What the shit? Okay, no. okay. I need to take evidence. Evidence That's is like needed. That's like properly blue. What the frickle I... frack? Do you know? I am so glad we paired that with orange because how pretty, how pretty does that no look? Way. That it's, is so It awesome. is meant to be blue, isn't it? We're not just it, saying it this. It is meant to be blue. Yeah, you, you haven't got dope tonic water. <laughs> <gasps> oh, my God. That is so cool. Okay, so why does it glow is now the question. So it glows because it's fluorescent. And uh, chemical fluorescence is where a molecule can absorb light and then re-emits it at a lower wavelength. So, you know, you've got the UV pigments, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And it means that quinine sometimes used a test substance in experiments involving fluorescence because you can go, well, I know exactly what this concentration of quinine does if I shine a UV light on it and uh, measure the result in my machine. Now I can see what this other chemical does. So quinine is fluorescent. And uh, when you're doing fluorescence experiments, you want a reference standard because when you're doing any sort of chemical experiment, your responses can be influenced by outside factors like how warm the lab is, that sort of thing. So you can't assume that everything will behave the same way in every lab. So what you want is a standard that is known to behave very specifically. So quinine has been used as this for really quite a long time because yeah. it's a simple, easily available, cheap, non-toxic uh, reference point. And mm. um, this is also why the back of the tonic water says uh, do not store indirect sunlight because <gasps> quinine's degraded by sunlight. Not not because it will glow in the does. dark, but it's degraded by sunlight, so it will lose taste. Oh, my God. And so, yeah, so not that it just won't glow, but it won't taste as good. I've always ignored those as just being, yeah, whatever. It might I not thought look it was because the bottle good. might be, like, mm. bad in direct. I just thought that maybe the liquid wouldn't look as, as palatable. But That's it's because fine. Well, yeah, don't don't buy a tonic from like fridges that have been running permanent raves, I guess. But it's not going to really degrade that quickly. That's how they should sell it. They should put it in a fridge with the lights so that it all glows. <gasps> I would buy so much tonic oh if I could God, see it glowing. Right. I'm going to round off quinine now with how it works, because I find it really interesting that nobody was absolutely sure until about 2019. There were theories that it mucked up the degradation of uh, heme, which is the red iron pigment that uh, makes your blood red. And if it gets 
sort of accumulated in a cell is really quite toxic because yeah. that iron uh, causes production of free radicals. Mm. So things that like hydrogen peroxide, sort of really yeah. nasty, aggressive, oxidising chemicals that damage cells. Mm. Um, but mm. there wasn't really particularly strong proof of that. I always think free radicals is like a social movement. Um, just Or it could be a bad radicals. Oh. <laughs> but I love the fact that, the, and there are so many of those things, aren't there, that are used for years and years and years. And it's just like, we use it because it works. We don't know <coughs> how. Women's birth control. <coughs> we don't know how it works. We do not why it works, but it works and we use it. Nobody understands it. But so eventually people worked out what it was. Uh, yeah, the way they did this was really weird because it's not an assay that I'd heard about till I went reading paper. Uh, they dosed up a load of malaria samples with lots and lots of quinine and then they just heated them up and looked at the melting and denaturing point of a protein because if the drug sticks to a protein, then it makes it more stable. It kind of holds it together. Like, well, like what I'm doing with my hands now, if I've locked mm-hmm. my fingers together, they're more stable than if they're wobbling about by themselves. And I think that's just so exciting because you can do that in a living cell and watch the temperature transitions and see what they do. And it's just so unusual. We're going to see when the proteins melt. But I and and also, are you? Do you think that they just decided to? Well, we'll have a go at this. Isn't that all of what science is? Isn't all of science (laughs) just, we could give it a go? Let's see. Have you tried this? Have you tried heating it up and cooling it down again? Turning it off and turning it on again? I believe all of science is just going, might as well. Yeah. There's a lot of tests that involve um, seeing how something bound to a protein can change its properties because, Mm. you know, you can't, well, you can look at proteins down a microscope, sort of, but the typical way that that's done is to crystallise them into a lump and then shoot x-rays at them and cool. watch the pattern that the x-rays make. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. Have we tried crystallising it? And shooting an x-ray at it. Yeah. No, we haven't. Let's give it a go. And then they were like, that works. One Christmas after a few gins. <laughs> a couple of See, scientists were in a room together makes. and they thought, hey... <laughs> Fuck Cluedo, I've got a better idea this year. <laughs> Look at the pattern of my one. It's not too bad a metaphor, sort of. I don't know if you've ever seen any of uh, Rosalind Franklin's original photographs for the work on the structure of DNA that she did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the diffraction rings. Because I'm a bit of a nerd and they're lovely. <laughs> okay. I'll show you later. Okay. It looks like a sort of weird combination of a cross and a bullseye, but it's what happens when you fire a beam of X-rays at a, a DNA crystal and you see the shape of it. But okay. um, the sort of stuff that we work on at EBI on malaria is trying to use machine learning to look at the kind of shapes that might fit into proteins and target uh, useful bits of malaria, even if they haven't yet been tried, or even if they exist and they're known to be safe as a drug, but haven't been tried on malaria yet. Mm. So in order to do this, we need a big database of chemicals, which is why I run these things and why I kind of pick up a lot of trivia as I go along, mm-hmm. because I'm reading around <laughs> information on the things we include and um, some of the blog posts that uh, we do on kind of chemical of the month for one of the other databases. I'm not responsible. 
chemical of the month. It's like employee of the month. Yeah, I I understand well, that's what, what I had the principle is, Sarah. Do you take a little picture of it? Put yeah. it on the wall? <laughs> <laughs> there is a little picture of the on the chubby blog, uh, the chemical of uh, the each month's blog post, and usually superimposed over something that it's related to. Oh, yeah, it's really cute. My God, why is that my favourite thing ever? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So we've talked about quinine. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else? There is. There is the smell of juniper. <gasps> Okay, so we always talk about the fact we really like a juniper region. We do. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realise there could be anything scientific about juniper. So they were historically used uh, to adulterate peppercorns or as a replacement for peppercorns just to kind of fill it out a bit with something much cheaper that didn't need to be imported all the way from Asia. The reason they've got the smell is that the juniper tree is, a juniper bush is a conifer. And they often produce these kind of oily or resinous chemicals. Uh, a lot of plants do, but uh, conifers make so much of this stuff. You know, you walk past a uh, pine forest and you can just oh, smell it. I love it. Oh, I love that. I really smell. love that. Yeah. yeah. And actually, I've been wanting to try a bit of Christmas tree in my gin and tonic. It's meant to be really good, so maybe James, tomorrow is when I do it. As to why that's not a good idea, please, because I do not want her chopping bits off our Christmas tree and putting them in my drink. You can cook with it too. <laughs> They're very high in vitamin C, spruce needles. Very high in vitamin C. Ow! Yeah, don't hit me. <laughs> also, you put an overdose of vitamin C on your face anyway. You don't need more. <laughs> Got some in your drink too. Oh, just... As much as we actually have a very good relationship, you are ruining it tonight. <laughs> oh no! Christmas is ruined. No! <laughs> yeah, so why do they have the smell? Because they produce these kind of oily resinous chemicals, and some of them are antifreezes. So if you're a pine tree and you're growing in the frozen north of Siberia and you suddenly freeze, when water freezes, it expands. As you'll know, the ice cubes mm. pop up inside the tray mm-hmm. a little bit. And if your tree full of water and it expands, what happens is your tree explodes and that is bad. Oh, yes. oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Whereas if you've got a load of kind of oily long chain chemicals in there, then they work just like antifreeze in a car engine and it stops the water freezing. It stops it splitting wood. And some of these chemicals work as insect repellents to stop things munching on the trees because they'll have a little mm-hmm. nibble and they go, I don't like Christmas trees that much. I'll, I'll steer away from the gym this year and uh, don't eat pine tree. Or they might want to be attracting insects they do want, i.e. for pollination, or to go and eat all the caterpillars. So that's uh, signalling. Plants do some brilliant things for signalling, but uh, you should ask someone who actually knows about this stuff. That's a different <laughs> different episode. <laughs> yes. And that's what gives you that kind of fresh, piney smell. And the interesting thing about these chemicals is... They show up in lots of plants. Orris root, which is often added to gin, they've got the same sort of uh, terpene chemicals in as well. And these have got names like alpha-pinene. Yeah, chemists, we, we call it like we see it. And limonene. <laughs> really do. Again, also calling it like we see it, it's the one that makes oranges smell of oranges. I don't know why they didn't call it orangine. I mean, the writer in me appreciates that yeah. because that's the thing I can add in that makes me sound clever, but it's actually Absolutely. really simple. Yeah. But the creative in me also goes, well, oh, 
could have been a bit more exciting. How long did it take you to come up yeah. with that one? Yeah. yeah, so these compounds are called uh, terpenes, which is from an old spelling of turpentine, which was mm. extracted by boiling up pine planks. Which you shouldn't put in your drink. Don't put turpentine in Get Don't. <laughs> <laughs> but boiling up pine planks gives you turpentine, which, turpentine. which terps is used for stripping paint. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, limonene, the stuff that oranges smell of, uh, that's a really effective degreaser. It's in lots of things you use to get like oil off your hands. You can dissolve polystyrene with it. It's used in 3D printing for that, actually. So turpentine, we're not putting it in our drink, but it's the same basis of juniper berries. Natural turpentine is a terpene chemicals extracted from pine wood. But I'm going to sort of wrap all this together at the end. Because, weirdly, all this takes us back to malaria. Because these terpene compounds, they're made of shorter chemical building blocks called isoprenes. And mm. malaria only has one sort of chemical pathway that is involved in making them. And human cells have two. And I learned this because back when I was studying malaria biochemistry, we were just looking at anything that might be a good target to go and sabotage that uh, human mm. cells wouldn't be bothered See, about. Why don't we give it a go? <laughs> <laughs> but why is it why has it got this and what's the plant connection? Because some of the chemical pathways that uh, are involved in malaria producing these isoprenes go through a tiny little lump of plant cell that uh, malaria kidnapped. Oh. It's got a bit of plant in it. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Okay, okay, so it kidnaps the plant cell. Yeah, why? Why does it take it? Okay, so at some point in its history, an ancestor of a malaria parasite swallowed some kind of algae, presumably, or other single-celled plant, and uh, nicked its chloroplast. And chloroplasts are the little green bits inside plant cells where photosynthesis yes. happens. Yeah, and I remember also... learning about that bit. Yeah. That was the bit of my GCSE paper I did I get know. right. Yeah. yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> Ten more biochemistry points. Uh... <laughs> I'm winning this one. Mm. <laughs> Corruption is real. But, uh, yes, the, the chloroplast doesn't just do photosynthesis. It's involved in some other chemical synthesis within the cell. And in malaria, it's kind of turned over some of its biochemistry to this separate little subsystem that it stole millions and millions of years ago. It's got this kind of little zombie chloroplast, the apicoplast. It doesn't do photosynthesis. It just kind of makes some bits that malaria needs. And because all the proteins in there are incredibly strange, they're more like plant ones than human ones, whereas malaria parasites, you know, it's... Maybe closer to a hu to a human cell than a plant cell. It doesn't have like cell wall and stuff. But mm. there's this kind of little bit of plant that means it's potentially a very good target for drugs because these plant proteins don't look anything like human ones. So if you're going to mess them up, it's much less it's like likely a back to. Door. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so here's what's crazy for me is the fact that you can take a gin and tonic, something that is. Not particularly scientific, I would typically argue. You don't even need to mix it up crazily in a bar. It's pretty simple. But then... Yeah, you, you don't can, need many qualifications. You don't need many one. qualifications. But then you can take the two elements, the key elements of it, because yeah. I know we would argue that garnish and ice is very important. 
But you can take you your tonic gone there. and you can take your gin and you can see two things that you can link directly to malaria, which is something devastating and horrible and an awful disease, but is then, you know, you can talk about it scientifically and the fact that these elements exist in... it. Ju- it's slightly blowing my mind at this point. And I don't... And gin and tonic. <laughs> gin and wow. tonic. Okay. It's bloody brilliant, the fact that you've managed to take... And full circle. Gin and tonic. And go, here's something really clever and intelligent to do with the drink that you enjoy. I think it's amazing. And I'm going to really enjoy listening back to this because there's so much that's already gone from my brain. Um, Because you said about coming full circle. And I'm now starting to think back to our poor little yeast animal and the fact that we should be protesting. We shouldn't be protesting. We've established that, Sarah. They're very happy. But all of that, all of that is in your glass. I know. And my one question is, what do I do with this little tiny torch? Shine it on his gin again. Go, ooh. Is it going to glow again? Yeah. (gasps) Yeah, even a little bit. (laughs) I'm just, I'm still crazy about that. Thank you so much for taking us on the journey, James. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. It has been a brilliant, brilliant journey. I'm, thank you so yeah. much. And thank you for gadgets as well. Gadgets, gin we recommendations, that. and a brilliant topic, which I've learned so much from. So much. I'm really impressed. <laughs> um, have you enjoyed your gin all the way to the end? I have, which was uh, why I was a bit uh, going around in circles on the last Brilliant. bit. I don't so, think we helped. We were particularly badly behaved today. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, James. Thank you. Bye. So, surprising sciencey things about gin and tonic. I think it's fair to say... In the most technical term, I'm shooketh to the chorus. Mm. Who would have thought it? One little gin and tonic. I've never, ever looked at a gin and thought, and maybe this is just me because of who I am. Well, I've never thought yeast poop. I've also never thought, I wonder what the science behind a gin and tonic is, ever. Mm-hmm. I just drink them. Mm-hmm. But now, thanks, James, every time I look at it, I'm going to go, I know this glows because of the quinine. I know. How many times when you get a glass will you be there going, oh, wish I could glow it? I'm going to buy I myself could. a torch. Are you? And I'm going to take it out with me on nights <laughs> out and I'm going to be that really sad person who goes, hey, guys. Like a mad drink. And then I'm going to go, do you know why that is? Well, that's because oh, of quinine. Do you know? And quinine was originally used as a treatment for fevers and malaria. And it Um, comes from a tree. (laughs) And we've always said, doing this podcast, we just like those things that we can drop into conversation to go, did you know? Did you know? And did you know how useful yeast is? No, I had no idea. And all those lovely things that you can just, you know, as you're chatting. Malaria has this tiny zombie zombie plant thing the juniper madness and I just yeah. whacked myself on the gin because I'm so excited if whacked yourself on the gin or the chin 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 chin, chin, chin. chin. yes um, and yeah so I'm I am I, I don't know how to unpick everything that's gone through my head because, because James did his research it was I'm an impressed. amazing journey all yeah. the way through yeah. and there are so many bits 
that I'm going to look forward to listening to again yeah. about yeast and how much they use it, how useful so, it is, yeah. and mainly useful because it just does its thing. Yeah, it's and like you can mix it's stuff. It's a cool it. thing. Yeah, um, and the therefore the making of the alcohol with yeah. the barley, the juniper that goes in to flavor it, yeah. and that connection with resin and uh, the pine and terps and Oh, oh, my God. And malaria and tonic and, and everything. we got James to drink. Well, James's partner got him to drink. Yeah, well done, An her. adult gin. Yeah, <laughs> and he liked it. And he liked it. And he can now go and enjoy his liqueur afterwards. That's true. It's because it is, after all, Christmas. But his liqueur won't glow. That's true. <gasps> so there we go. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. Light up your gin glasses. Oh, piss off. (laughs) (laughs) Merry Christmas. Enjoy tomorrow. I hope you enjoyed that little episode. You got to the end, so hopefully you did. (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) If you'd like more content from us... You can follow us on Instagram. You can. And you'll also find our chief gin taster, the Gin Monkey, with tasting notes of all the gins that we're tasting in the series. Go on to Instagram, so it's worth following. Yeah, yeah. Topic gin. Topic gin. Same on Twitter. Same on Twitter. Send us a little tweet. Yeah, we're on Facebook too. Topic gin, keeping it all nice and simple. And you can email us. You can, if you want, at hello at ginandtopic.com if you click subscribe as well that would be really handy reviews tell people you to do and we'll be back next week with another episode i know and another guest and another gin yay (laughs) and don't forget to join me and emma in our new tasting room on sunday and she can tell us all about the gin